0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: Kids, wake up. I think something's wrong with your father.
2: What time is it?
1: It's Paul. Something's the matter. Go look.
2: Alright, alright. Give me the lamp. He's just in there sleeping. Pa? Hey, wake up now. Are you. Oh, oh no. Pa! He's been attacked! Someone attacked Pa!
0: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
3: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case.
0: You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. And if you like today's episode, be sure to check out our newest true crime show, Solved Murders, exclusively on Spotify.
3: This is our final episode on the death of John Hassick. Last week, we covered John's life as an Iowa farmer and his abusive relationship with his wife, Margaret. This week, we'll dig into the circumstances behind John's death and the court cases that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: Around one in the morning on December 2nd, 1900, 57-year-old Margaret Hasek yelled to her sleeping children for help. The five Hasek kids who lived on the farm quickly hurried to their parents' bedroom.
3: 18-year-old Will Hasek went in first, carrying his mother's oil lamp. The lamp only threw a faint light, but it was enough for him to make out the whole grisly scene.
0: John Hasek was lying in bed, soaked with blood. A long, deep gash crossed his head just above his right ear. His skull was smashed nearly beyond recognition. Blood and brain matter were everywhere.
3: The rest of the Hosick family slowly filed in and stared down at their father. His injuries made them assume that John was dead, but then the man let out a ragged breath.
0: Somehow John Hosick was still conscious even though Will could see his broken skull in the flickering lamplight.
3: He was even able to talk, but his voice was weak and he was confused.
5: Pa? His fingers, he's moving his fingers.
3: Who did this to you?
5: He's not going to-
2: Let him speak, <gasps> Cassie. Nobody hurt me. Yes, they did, Pa. You're hurt real bad.
4: I'm fine. I'm only sick. Why is she crying? (sighs) Because you're all
5: cut up. You're bleeding all over and- (laughs) I'm just
4: sick. Sick and cold. It's very cold. Uh...
3: As the family huddled over John, Will went outside to get a bucket of coal for the stove. He stepped onto the porch, trying to catch a glimpse of movement in case the attacker was still lurking outside.
0: Will noticed that the family's dog, Shep, was curled up on the porch. Shep was a farm dog and usually protected the house at night. Even a wayward cow riled him up. Will was surprised to see him sleeping through all the drama inside.
3: Will tried to get Shep to join him, but Shep was sluggish and tired. He tried to yell at the dog and force Shep up, but nothing would move him. So Will gave up and left to go get the coal himself.
0: Shep was still passed out on the porch when the other Hossi children returned with every neighbor they could find. Some offered to ride across town to spread the news. Others were just there to stand around and watch the action unfold.
3: But one neighbor would be conspicuously absent that night. A farmer named William Haynes, who lived with his wife nearby. When two of the Hossack children ran to his door for help, Haynes was strangely evasive.
2: Who's there? It's the Hossack kids. Let us in. What do you want? We're sleeping. Someone broke into the farmhouse tonight and attacked Pa.
5: Please, Mr. Haynes, we need all the help we can...
2: I already seen a man on my porch tonight. A strange man. I'm not going out there. Mr. Haynes, if you saw someone on your porch, it might have been the man who did this to our Pa. You need to come over. Don't be scared. You need to tell someone what you saw. I ain't scared. I just ain't leaving. Don't make me say it again.
3: William Haynes may have been the only neighbor who didn't show up that night. When the Hossack's doctor, William Dean, arrived at the farm a few hours before sunrise, the house was overrun with people.
4: Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm the doctor. Keep the room clear. Miss Hossack. Margaret. I need you to tell me what happened.
1: I was asleep. Then I woke up and found him like this.
4: His head is crushed. The force of these blows must have been... You didn't feel it?
1: All I heard was a sound like two pieces of wood clapping together. Then I woke up and found him.
4: It just seems impossible that someone could swing in the dark and only hit John. Are you sure you hadn't gotten up to go to the privy, or?
1: I was asleep.
0: The Hossacks shared a bed not much larger than a twin-size mattress. Neither of them were small people. Dr. Dean was skeptical that she could have slept through the whole attack, but Margaret stuck to her story.
3: A few minutes later, the Hossacks' oldest son in the area, 24-year-old Johnny, arrived. On his way inside, he also noticed how strange the dog Shep was acting. It was almost like the dog had been drugged.
0: While he had heard about what happened, nothing could prepare him for the bloody scene in his parents' bedroom. Margaret was at the bedside, crying as Dr. Dean looked at John's wounds.
3: Margaret asked Dean if John had a chance of recovery. The doctor was blunt. John was going to die. It was just a matter of time.
0: The 59-year-old farmer finally succumbed to his injuries later that morning. John Hasek died at 9.45 a.m. on December 2nd, 1900. A few minutes
3: later, Johnny and a neighbor named Louis Brought stepped outside for a walk around the family's property to talk about what had happened.
4: I'm sorry, Johnny. Your father was a good man, and... I don't know if that's the word for him. Well, he was a successful man. A good farmer. At least he's that. Or was that. Wait a minute. Are those footprints? What? Lou? Where? Headed up north, towards the Haynes farm. And look at that. No, over there. Under the... Hang on. This must be it. This must be what did the deed to John.
2: That axe is so dull and chipped it can barely hack kindling. It's- No,
4: look here on the blade. You know what that is? I'm not sure that's- Over here! I found the weapon! It's covered in blood! The killer must have tossed it under the granary!
0: Sheriff Hodgson arrived at the Hossack Farm at 12 p.m. and quickly took the axe as evidence, but he never investigated the footprints because they were already closing in on a suspect. Margaret. So Dr. Dean and a few other officials from the county, including a 27-year-old attorney named George Klammer, sat down for an interview with the woman.
3: Margaret told them exactly what she told the doctor earlier. She had been sound asleep while John was hacked to death next to her. By the time she woke up, the killer was gone.
0: Well, George Klammer was suspicious. The bed was small and Margaret hadn't even been cut by the murder weapon. Her nightgown was only covered in a few drops of blood.
3: Clammer asked about her relationship with her husband, but Margaret refused to say a bad word about John. She denied that their marriage had been anything but perfect.
0: It seemed Margaret was trying to rewrite her family's history, but it wouldn't take long until the truth came out.
4: When we return, the investigation begins. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
3: Back to the show.
0: On the morning of December 3rd, 1900, Warren County officials launched an inquest into 59-year-old John Hossack's murder. For two days, they questioned doctors, family members, and neighbors from around the area. The neighbors were eager to share their thoughts.
3: The people who had repeatedly told Margaret to keep quiet about John's abuse were all too happy to talk about it now. Attorney George Klammer heard story after story about Margaret's struggles and how she allegedly wished her husband was dead.
4: But
0: when the officials questioned Margaret again, she continued to deny everything. Do
2: you know of anyone who had troubles with John? No, sir. Is anything missing from around the house? No, sir. Did you have any troubles with John yourself? No, sir. Did you ever fight or argue? Did he ever hit you, or hit the children, or lose his temper and
3: just... No, sir. On the evening of December 4th, 1900, the inquest ruled that John Hossack's cause of death was two blows to his head. One, by a sharp instrument, like an axe blade, and the other, by what they referred to as a blunt instrument, which could have been the butt of the axe.
0: The inquest didn't officially name Margaret as a suspect, but George Clammer, the county attorney, was already convinced that she was the killer.
3: So while the Hossick family loaded John's body into a coffin and set off for the funeral the next day, Clammer went to a judge to get an arrest warrant.
0: On December 5th, Margaret Hossack rode with her husband's body to the New Virginia Cemetery, where John's parents were already buried. She listened to the pastor's final words and watched as the coffin disappeared into the ground.
3: Just a few yards away on the outskirts of the cemetery, Sheriff Hodson waited for the ceremony to finish. Then, as Margaret and her family headed back to their buggies, he stopped her and placed her under arrest for her husband's brutal murder.
0: The sheriff took Margaret Hossick to the Warren County Jail in Indianola, Iowa, and locked her in a tiny cell to await her trial.
3: The Hossack family hired former Iowa State Senator William Barry to take on their mother's case. They reportedly paid Barry $500 up front, over $15,000 today.
0: The Hossacks were committed to paying whatever it took to win their mother's freedom, and they promised another $1,500 if he pulled it off.
3: Margaret's family may have been willing to stake a lot of money on her innocence, but the townspeople around Warren County were already declaring her guilty.
0: Susan Glasspull, a young reporter for the nearby Des Moines Daily News, wrote in a December 5th article that Friends of Mrs. Hossack are beginning to suggest that she is insane. Members of the Hossack family are standing by her solidly, but public sentiment is overwhelmingly against her.
1: She's obviously guilty.
4: She looks like someone who could swing an axe. Those broad shoulders.
1: She killed the man while he slept. What kind of woman...
4: Can you even call her a woman with a face like that? Those cold eyes. Even when she's crying.
5: It's not ladylike. Can I quote you on that? If you'd like to give me your names for the article, I'll...
0: Susan Glasspool was only 24 years old when she began reporting on the John Hossack murder, the same age Margaret was when she moved to the Iowa farm.
3: Susan grew up in the city of Davenport, Iowa. She graduated from Drake University in Des Moines in 1898 and quickly landed a job at the Des Moines Daily News. The murder case was her first big story for the newspaper and Margaret's trial would go on to become one of the defining moments of Susan's
0: life. After reviewing a few short articles about John's death and Margaret's arrest, Susan decided to travel down to Warren County and see the Hossack Farm herself.
2: Don't touch that! We're not done collecting evidence yet. Which paper are you from again?
5: Apologies, Sheriff. Daily news. Out of Des Moines.
2: Right. Well, look around. But don't touch. I'll be in the bedroom.
5: That's fine. This place is just so... Do you feel that?
2: Feel what?
5: It's... I don't know. Loneliness, I suppose? This little house on all this land, surrounded by nothing?
2: Welcome to Iowa, ma'am.
5: I was born and raised here. But... I guess I'm just not used to something so... rural.
2: (sighs) Des Moines? That's not Iowa. This here is Iowa.
0: Susan may have grown up only 200 miles from the Hossack farm, but she quickly saw how different her and Margaret's lives had been.
3: To understand the case, Susan realized that her readers had to understand Margaret Hossack's isolated life as a rural farm wife. She started painting a complex and compassionate portrait of the accused woman in her articles.
5: Mrs. Hasek was surrounded by three of her daughters and all of a... Wait, all but one of her sons, and wept bitterly in her seat. Her grief was not hers alone. It spread and spread until the weeping group embraced the family. Margaret, or... Let's see, Mrs. Hosick is bearing up well, but day by day she seems more haggard. She could win, but the terrible strain may be permanently undermining her health and bringing her to an early grave. It seems like her hair is turning perceptibly lighter, and the gray is gradually giving way to silver. But
3: even with Susan's nuanced portrait, most of the townspeople had already decided that Margaret was the killer. It was no surprise when, on January 17th, 1901, a grand jury charged Margaret Hossack with murder in the first degree. Her trial was scheduled for April, but just weeks before the case went to court, Margaret's lawyer, William Berry, had a suspicious encounter with the Hossack's neighbor.
0: At the end of March, Barry headed out to visit William Haynes, the farmer who Margaret allegedly asked to kill John. He was also the man who refused to help out on the night of the attack.
3: During the inquest, Haynes had shared stories about the Hossack's violent and unhappy marriage. He was set to testify at the trial, but not long after his meeting with Barry, something
0: happened. Haynes had a mental breakdown and had to be institutionalized It was suspicious timing, but the court never considered Haynes a suspect. All focus was on Margaret.
3: Instead, when the trial began on April 1st, 1901, William Haynes' wife, Rinda, was one of the many former friends and neighbors who testified against Margaret Hossack. as prosecutor George Klammer used Margaret's own pleas for help against her.
0: He spoke to John Hossack's acquaintances, who painted John as an important member of the Warren County community, and Margaret is a hardened, unladylike wife who wanted him dead.
3: Clammer was particularly interested in the couple's meltdown on Thanksgiving, 1899. He wanted to prove that the Hossack family's troubles had continued through the next year until Margaret finally snapped. But the Hossack children refused to help his case. One by one, the Hossacks took the stand, and one by one, they swore that their parents had worked out their differences despite what some other neighbors testified.
0: Clammer still didn't have the proof he needed to convict Margaret Hossick. He called up a string of experts to help strengthen his case, and Margaret's defense team poked holes in each of them.
3: A coroner testified that John's ability to speak and the way his blood had clotted proved Margaret didn't wake her children until long after the attack. But he later admitted to the defense that he was only guessing. A professor who analyzed hairs on the family's axe eventually told Barry he couldn't be sure that they were human hairs at all.
0: No one could even prove that the axe was the murder weapon.
3: For one more piece of defense, William Barry turned to an unexpected witness, the Hossack's dog, Shep.
0: Multiple people reported that Shep had been strangely tired and zoned out the day after John Hossack's death. Some neighbors at the time suggested that the dog looked drugged. And Barry hoped the possibility that the real killer could have slipped the dog chloroform would be enough to keep Margaret out of prison.
3: But Barry knew that if he really wanted to get the jury on Margaret's side, he had to do one more thing.
0: He had to put her on the stand herself.
4: And then what did you see, Mrs. Hasek?
1: It was John's body, lying there with his head looking like it did. But you didn't see anyone else in the house? No, sir, I did not. And you didn't feel the bed
4: shake from the attack?
1: No, sir, I did not. Look, John was not always the easiest man to please. We had our quarrels in the past like any couple, but he was my husband, Mr. Barry. I loved him, the last thing he said to me, was that he hoped the sun would be out when he got up, and it was a beautiful day, (laughs) but he never saw it.
0: For two hours on April 8th, 1901, Margaret Hossack answered the attorney's questions. She repeated the same story she had told so many times already, starting with the moment she woke up next to her husband's blood-soaked body.
3: To Susan Glaspell, watching from the back of the courtroom, Margaret's testimony felt genuine and heartbreaking.
5: Tears streamed down Mrs. Hussick's cheeks as she recalled her final moments with her husband and the horrific realization he was dead. These were not the words of the hardened murderer the prosecution made her out to be. They were the words of an aging wife and mother drowning in her grief. And there seemed to be the impression around the audience that Mrs. Hasek was telling the truth.
0: But Margaret's fate wasn't up to Susan or the people in the audience. Her life lay in the hands of the 12 men in the jury box.
3: Coming up, the jury makes their ruling on Margaret's case. Back to the show.
0: Women weren't allowed to serve on juries in 1901, so Margaret Hossack's jury was composed of farmers and businessmen from around Warren County. They may not have known 59-year-old John Hossack personally, but they knew the kind of man he was. Someone exactly like them.
3: Attorney George Klammer lacked hard evidence to prove Margaret's guilt, but he knew exactly what he needed to tell the jury in his closing statement.
2: She had never been a loving wife. She had never been a woman of strong affections. And that night, murder crept into her strange soul. She advanced to the bedside of her man and raised the family's axe. It was a coward's blow. John Hossack, an honest man, had turned his back on the world and gone to sleep little expecting that his own wife would sneak up and strike him down. You all should pity Margaret Hossick like she pitied her husband. What pity does she deserve at the hands of his jury? She does not deserve to live. She has forfeited her right to do so.
3: William Barry made his own plea for Margaret's innocence, but Clamor's words stuck with the jury. On the morning of April 11th, 1901, the all-male jury found 57-year-old Margaret Hossick guilty of murder and she was sentenced to life in prison.
0: According to Susan Glaspell, Margaret was so stunned, she was silent for the first few minutes after the verdict was read.
5: And then, as reality sunk in, Glaspell wrote, The woman found guilty of the murder of her husband was led back to the county jail And for hours, she cried with a violence that brought at length relief in utter hysterical exhaustion. Mrs. Hossack has proven at least that she is a woman.
0: A week later, Margaret was transported to her new home at the Anamosa State Maximum Security Prison.
3: She was stripped, washed, and shown to a private cell in Anamosa State Penitentiary. The cell was cramped and tiny, but at least she had it to herself.
0: The prison even had bathrooms with hot water, which must have felt like a small luxury for Margaret after a lifetime of outhouses.
3: Margaret's day-to-day life in prison was almost easy after raising nine children and maintaining the farm. Her meals were cooked for her at the cafeteria, and she was allowed to visit the library and the garden and take a shower.
0: For the first time in Margaret's life she only had herself to look after.
3: While Margaret sat in prison her lawyer William Barry continued to work. In the fall of 1901 Barry brought Margaret's case in front of the Iowa Supreme Court. Her conviction was unfair Barry said because it was based more on public opinion than fact and clamor's closing statements were overly dramatic and inappropriate for a courtroom.
0: The Iowa Supreme Court took a look at the trial, and on April 9th, 1902, almost exactly a year after Margaret Hosek was sentenced to life in prison, they made a decision.
4: Wake up, Margaret.
1: Um, What?
4: On your feet. I'll need you to come with me. What is it? The warden will tell you once we get to the office. Come on, let's go.
1: Is something wrong? What's going on? Is it Ivan? Or Will? Has something happened to—
4: Margaret, hang on. It's not like that. It's— Listen, nothing is wrong. It's the opposite. You're heading back to Indianola. You're getting a retrial.
0: In the spring of 1902, Margaret was transferred out of Animosa Prison and taken back to the same county jail where she had been held during her first trial—
3: She was released on a $15,000 bond paid in part by the same Warren County neighbors who had turned against her during the trial. Finally, after a year in prison, the 59-year-old was free again.
0: Margaret's second trial started on February 12, 1903. It was held at the Madison County Courthouse to avoid another jury of Warren County men who knew and respected John Hosek.
3: During her time in prison, public opinion had changed completely. Margaret's community had mostly decided that she had been unfairly charged. The mood of the second trial felt dramatically different than the first.
0: Prosecutor George Clammer called many of the same witnesses he had the first time around with one major change. This time, he brought William Haynes to the stand.
3: The Hossack suspicious neighbor had finally been released from the institution and could be called up as a witness. Now, Klammer hoped, Haynes could strengthen the case against Margaret by explaining how she once tried to get him to kill John.
0: But Haynes only managed to strengthen the case against himself.
2: Order in the court. Please repeat that, Mr. Haynes. I said that there never was a stranger on my porch the night of John's
4: murder. You lied to the Hossack children then? I suppose I did. Why did you refuse to help? My,
2: uh, <clears throat> well, my wife didn't want me to go. So, I just said the thing about the strange man. And, and I had a row with John a few weeks before. You had a. a what? A, a row? John and I had a little disagreement about politics.
4: It was more than a little, I suppose. But. Mr. Haynes, you originally testified that you hadn't fought with John in years. You told the sheriff— I suppose I lied to him, too.
0: Without William Haynes, the prosecution didn't have the testimony it needed to put Margaret Hasek back in prison. But George Klammer had one final trick up his sleeve.
3: He dragged John and Margaret's blood-soaked bed in front of the jury. Then he grabbed the family's axe in both hands, raised it above his head, and slammed it down on the bed as the jury watched the tiny bed shake and nearly collapse under his force.
0: Clammer's point was clear. It would have been impossible for Margaret hossick to sleep through an attack like that.
3: But it still wasn't enough. On February 27, 1903, the jury declared that they were split and could not reach a unanimous vote. Court was adjourned.
0: Margaret Hossack was never retried. The case against her was effectively dismissed.
3: Margaret Hossack celebrated her 60th birthday as a free woman. She moved in with her son Jimmy in Indianola, Iowa, only a short walk from the county jail where she once had a cell.
0: Susan Glaspell, the newspaper reporter who wrote about Margaret's first trial, never covered her second. Susan had given up journalism and started writing fiction, She later moved to Provincetown, Massachusetts at the tip of Cape Cod with her husband, George Cook, where they befriended playwright Eugene O'Neill and started a theater group.
3: But Susan never
5: forgot Margaret Hosek. What do you mean, write a play? I'm no playwright.
2: You're a writer. It doesn't matter what you write.
5: What do I even have to write about?
2: You know how you are. You can find inspiration anywhere.
5: (laughs) That's sweet, but I don't
2: think- Even in our kitchen! Just look around. Where does your mind go?
5: (sighs) Fine. You win. Let's see. Well, it makes me think of another kitchen. One that I was in 15 years ago. And how different that one was from this. Start writing.
0: Susan's one-act play, called Trifles, premiered in Provincetown on August 8, 1916.
3: The play isn't explicitly about John Hossack's murder, but it's inspired by Margaret's trial and the day she saw inside the rural woman's life on the farm.
0: Trifles tells the story of a sheriff's wife and her friend who visit a farmhouse belonging to a man named John Wright. Wright had been strangled in his bed and his wife was the main suspect. As the sheriff and county attorney search for clues upstairs in the bedroom, the two women wait in the kitchen.
3: The men find nothing, but the women uncover evidence of Mrs. Wright's difficult and isolated life all around her kitchen. When they find a broken birdcage and the body of a tiny songbird with a crushed neck, they realized what happened.
0: Mr. Wright had killed the bird to spite his wife the last straw in a series of abuses that he had heaped upon her throughout their life. Mrs. Wright killed him to free herself from his clutches.
3: Understanding her plight, the two women eventually decide to protect Mrs. Wright and hide the evidence from the sheriff.
0: Margaret Hossack likely never knew about the play she inspired. She died at age 72 on August 25th, 1916, just weeks after Trifles debuted on stage. A few days later, Margaret was buried in the Hossack family plot in New Virginia Cemetery, right next to her husband's grave. His murder was never officially solved.
3: Looking at the facts, I think Margaret was the killer. It doesn't seem possible for her to have slept through the attack or come out unharmed through the process. She was trapped in a violent relationship with no help or support. Murder may have been her only way out.
0: I agree, but I think there's a possibility someone else was involved. Maybe her suspicious neighbor, William Haynes, or one of her children, participated in the slaying. After all, they all suffered the same abuse. Whatever the truth may have been, there was never enough evidence to prove guilt one way or the other.
3: Ultimately, the Hossack's trial revealed more about the society's restrictive roles for women than John's murder ever did. Susan saw how Margaret's cries for help were used as evidence against her and how the jury was full of John's peers, not her own.
0: Margaret's complicated legacy lives on in trifles, but the truth about her husband's death likely died with her.
3: Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode.
0: For more information about the Hossick family, amongst the many sources we used, we found Patricia Bryan and Thomas Wolfe's book, Midnight Assassin, A Murder in America's Heartland, extremely helpful to our research.
3: You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify.
0: Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify's making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
3: To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open up the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar.
0: We'll see you next time.
3: If we live till next time.
0: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by River Donahay, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, Rebecca Thomas, Jen Wong, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.